Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're listening to an interview that you did with Claire Dieterer. Yeah, she has this new book out. It's called Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma. And it is about this very old question that is probably more in the news now than it used to be, whether we can separate the art from the artist, whether we want to, whether that's possible, what that means. And it was a really interesting conversation. It's a question that I've thought about for a long time. Who's the artist that makes you think about it the most? It's a good question. I would say that the first person that I realized that I had this question with was T.S. Eliot. When I learned, I really loved T.S. Eliot in high school. I loved him. I loved, I loved it so much. And in college, I, I learned that he was an anti-Semite. And then I learned that Ezra Pound was an anti-Semite. And in the end, and there's a person in this book who Claire asks about, you know, being Jewish and, and reading different works. And, and he says like, well, if you cut out the anti-Semites, it's everybody. <laughs> Just I sort of remember when I kind of realized that and realized that there were certain works that were written by people who would not like me in some in some way. I don't know how you feel about it. I think it initially, at least as like a young person and a young like lover of literature, it felt like a betrayal, really feels personal almost, because you have like a personal connection to that person and their work. But I would say these days, I don't know, it kind of changes day to day. You know, last night I heard a Michael Jackson song and I was like, I like this. I like this. I don't like, <laughs> but I know the context. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, How about I you? agree. Oh yeah. That's a long list. I mean, my MJ is definitely one. The music sounds great sometimes, especially when I hear it, like in a place, like where there are a lot of children, let's say like I was at a roller rink on a kid's day recently and they were blasting Michael Jackson. And I was thinking how funny it was or perversely funny. But on the anti-Semite question, I think for me, Christopher Isherwood was someone because I love Christopher Isherwood so much and I love the diaries. And in the diaries, he's often describing people who are Jewish and women, I have to say, in a in a fairly negative light at times. I mean, but you know, I don't think he was a raging anti-Semite, maybe the way others were, but it's very clear in his work that he had those feelings at times. And I stumbled a bit on it. Celine is another one. Gives me some yeah. pause reading reading his books, but I, he's such an amazing writer. And I, for me, I, if, especially if the person is dead and it's not about funding their misdeeds somehow or enabling them and continuing to purchase their records, I, I, it's not as complicated a conversation. And I don't think people are evil. And I think everyone is has does bad deeds because of something that happened to them. So I I have a more expansive view of it, but I still would grapple with, you know, if I bought a ticket for this person's concert, does that mean they're going to be able to keep on doing bad things? That might come to me for sure. Yeah, same. And then there's certain people where I was like, well, great. I don't have to engage with this work ever again. Like I feel right. this feels like pretty easy, <laughs> but yeah, it's pretty rare that I would, I would boycott someone. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, I agree. I think people are very complicated and, and difficult and can create something beautiful despite their personal ugliness. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. Well, and, and so I'm even more curious to hear where this conversation with Claire Dieter went. Let's get to it. Great. 
Today, we're speaking with writer and critic Claire Dieterer. Claire is the author of Love and Trouble, as well as the memoir Poser, My Life in 23 Yoga Poses. She's a longtime contributor to the New York Times, and her work has also appeared in The Atlantic, The Nation, New York Magazine, Vogue, as well as many other publications. Her new book is called Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma. The book is a personal and critical investigation of how to deal with the art and work of difficult or monstrous people. She first started thinking about this question while working on a book about Roman Polanski. Dieter dives into the naughty moral questions around art and the often flawed people who make it. She considers how an artist's behavior might stain and affect the way an audience approaches a work. Dieter explores and asks questions about people like Woody Allen, J.K. Rowling, Picasso, and Nabokov. How do we deal with the monsters among us, especially when they've created something we love? Claire, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. There's a lot to talk about with this book, but let's start with where the book began for you. You were working initially on a book about Roman Polanski, and it transitioned to this project. Can you tell us about how how that happened? I was writing my last book, which was a memoir called Love and Trouble. The book was about growing up in the sexually predatory environment of the 1970s and 1980s, and about how that affected my life and had ripples out through the rest of my life. And Polanski was in my head as I was writing the book, and I used him. The book is really formally experimental. It works with several different borrowed forms to tell its story, and one of the forms I used was an open letter to Polanski, who, of course, I don't know. I was using him as a kind of totem figure or a straw man to talk about some of my ideas about predatory men. So I really researched what happened with his rape I researched his life. I read the girl's deposition. I really became very familiar with what happened. And then to my own surprise, at the end of the project or toward the end of the project, I was still able to watch his films. And this was really surprising to me. I thought this is a really, you know, I've been a writer for a long time and I thought this is an interesting problem. You know, it's not like I'm ignorant of the crime and yet I'm still watching Rosemary's Baby or Repulsion or whatever. So I started thinking and writing about it and probably in 2015 and really started writing the book, this book, Monsters, really started to conceive of it as a book in 2016. So I came at it through this really personal lens of my own experience. Let's give some examples from the book. Who are some of the people whose work you discuss in this book? Before I list them, I just want to say that the book was never intended as a catalog of monsters that I was going to give this exhaustive list of, you know, every rotten person who'd ever done any rotten thing. And you know, people would text me and email me throughout the writing of the book. Well, are you going to cover this person? Are you going to cover that person? You know, there's always someone new. At one point, I thought about having an epilogue would just be a list of everyone who was accused over the course of the writing of the book. But the idea of the book always was this idea of the autobiography of the audience. This is what I was trying to write. And so I was constantly thinking about the audience experience and how they perceive the work. And the people that I chose were people who helped me illustrate that dynamic rather than, you know, people who I felt like needed to be included because somehow they were like, you know, somehow were the monsters. So some of the people I talk about are Roman Polanski, Woody Allen, 
One of the very few people who came in toward the end was J.K. Rowling, um, because it just felt like that was such an important story in terms of children inhabiting her world and then feeling rejected by her world. I felt like I had to talk about it. I talk about Doris Lessing. I talk about Valerie Solanas. I touch on Raymond Carver, who is really dear to me as a Pacific Northwest writer. Carl Andre. Those are a few. Yeah. And maybe we can talk a little bit about the title of the book and why you choose the term monster. And what is an art monster, which is a term that that you actually borrow from another writer? The term monsters is like almost every single thing I think or say in this book, immediately problematized. I sort of introduce the term. And then by the time we're very far into the book, I turn away from it. And I think I wanted to choose this very strong word to open with because I wanted to get inside the culture of kind of absolutes in which we find ourselves. I wanted to kind of write from inside that place because that's where we're all sort of navigating as we think about this problem. You know, that's how the, sorry to use this word, that's how the discourse works in kind of an absolute kind of way. So I wanted to introduce the idea and I also wanted to immediately play with it. The other reason I was really interested in it was because of Jenny Ophel's book, Department of Speculation. She brings up this concept of the art monster, which is a person who only thinks about art and someone else takes care of everything for them. This person is generally a man. And this was a really, when her book was published, this idea of art monster kind of created little brush fires all over with lots of lots of female writers of my experience and probably yours too, and artists. This idea of the art monster as something, both a desirable thing to be and also sort of an impossible thing to be if you have commitments of caring for other people. So those were the sort of, twin impulses in bringing that word monsters in. And then I immediately started to reject the word, you know, within the context of the book as I wrote. Why did you start to feel like that term is not appropriate or sufficient? I think I was using the word to get at the extremity of the response. And I wanted to look at a more nuanced response. And so as I was writing, I came across this idea of the stain. This is the central metaphor of the book. And of course, the publisher wouldn't let me title the book The Stain. But to me, the the idea of the stain, it's such an evocative image and there's kind of a sorrow to it as well as an, an accusation quality. So when we... When something is stained, we don't make a decision about it. It just sort of happens and we're left with the stained thing. And I really liked the idea of the indelibility of the stain and the way biography affects our experience of the work, whether we want it to or not. You know, so often when you're talking about this, someone will tell you, well, you just need to separate the art from the artist. And the stain metaphor sort of pushes back against that idea and says it's, you know, indelibility is not voluntary, I say in the book. It's just, you know, the glass of wine falls on the floor and there's a stain, whether you like it or not. And so coming from this place of the sort of non-voluntary nature of our response to our knowledge of the biography of the artist is where the stain comes from. The scene feels really up to me. And I think when you write about Wagner and Stephen Fry, who made a documentary about him, and he talks about this beautiful tapestry or a beautiful quilt and how there's perhaps a stain on it, but you can still appreciate 
its beauty, right? Or you can still see its beauty that, but that for some people, the stain ruins it. And then for some people, it's just a part of the, part of the experience of looking at this beautiful thing. Right. I think that, you know, everybody has a different response to this stuff. And I think that one of the big projects of the book is to really get inside that idea of personal or subjective response and sort of valorize it. I think that when we have this conversation or when I was having this conversation, I don't want to say we, but when I've had this conversation, there's often kind of a should quality of the response. There's often an idea of what we ought to do. And perhaps we can talk about what we ought to do once we take on board the fact that we're having a complex relationship with the work, but we can't have this kind of prescriptive, this idea that someone else should perceive the art in a certain way. Like, you know, I talk about in the book, I talk about Manhattan and how that film is colored by my own experiences of having been sexually predated. And somebody telling me to separate the art from the artist is denying the fact that I can't, you know, that this is the experience I bring to that piece of art. And in fact, that person who's saying separate the two things is bringing their own experience, but it's invisible. Well, actually, this brings us to one of the, as you just point out, one of the central sort of tensions in the book is this question around we, and you really struggle with using it and you sort of toggle back and forth between, and there's many parts in this book that struck me as, well, as an editor, I saw some parts and I was like, well, I would edit that out because they are sort of self-referential almost immediately where you write a statement and then you say, well, actually, let me qualify it right away. And the we sort of works that way a lot where you say something with this big we and then you say, let me amend that and say I, because that we is so unstable. It's so changeable. It's so exclusive and inclusive and really kind of unpredictable ways sometimes. And I wonder if you could just talk about how you sort of grappled with that issue of talking, because I think instinctively we is an easier way to go, right? <laughs> because you imagine yourself as part of an audience, as you imagine yourself as, as part of a public. And it's hard to separate yourself from that. The we is a tool that's used by nonfiction writers a lot in order to amplify what is often a personal response into sort of gesturing at the idea that it's a shared response without necessarily doing the work of research or the work of conversations with other people. The we becomes this way of sort of anointing self as authority. It's a very, you know, we hate the artist and we love the work. That's a very different statement than I hate what the artist did and I love the work is a much more, it's weaker, it's more tender, it's, you know, it's more volatile, it's more changeable, and it's more automatically true. So the complication of the word we was another way that I'm attempting throughout the book to subvert easy access to authority. And to keep an eye out for that in myself and in other writers. But of course, there's so many ways in which the word we can be really powerful. You know, this idea of what happens when a bunch of people join voices and say what happened to them, you know, as we saw, we saw, as I saw in the fall of 2017, right? 
you know, when you're looking at me too, and people are speaking those words together, that has a complicated side, but there's also a positive side of joining together as a megaphone toward people's lived experience. And there's also the we of being a fan and the culture of being a fan that is a collective status that I think can be really heady and beautiful. So the word has lots of different ways that it operates. How do you think fandom these days or in the 21st century is different from fandom in decades past? I think that everything, you know, it's such a truism that it's banal to say that everything's affected by the existence of the internet. But of course, that's the case. I'm 56 years old, so I've seen this really change. And I think there were collective fandoms in the past, right? Like there was the experience of going to see the Beatles and weeping. That's something that's as much about the experience of standing with a group of girls looking at the Beatles as it is about your relationship with the Beatles. It's about this kind of shared experience and the the kind of beauty and power of that. And that experience has been both accelerated, magnified, and commodified by the internet to the point where now, you know, in many ways, fandom is what we're buying and selling on the internet. So I think that now, you know, the fan is ascendant. The fan is one of the many, many ways we inhabit the internet and thereby inhabit ourselves. What kind of fan would you characterize yourself as? Or would you characterize yourself as part of that sort of culture of fandom at all? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's complicated because I've been a critic my entire working life, which is sort of a nightmare in a way, because if you, I mean, you do this work and you know that when you write about something, you professionalize it. And when you professionalize it, you leech all joy from it. So, you know, there's always that thing. Every writer has that nonfiction writer, like, okay, if I'm going to write about this subject in a book, it's going to be dead to me by the time I'm done with the book. And that can even be, you know, so be true in an article. And so there's a way in which my fandom is corrupted by the professionalization of it, which is specific to a critic. But overall, I would say one of my returning to a state of fan is one of my objectives always. So when I'm, for instance, reading a book for review, I try to come to it as a potential fan of that person. I try to come to it with emotion. I try to come to it as an audience member, not as an expert. And the same thing, like I'm very attuned to the moment I might fall in love with a piece of music and get to that place where I get to be a fan. It's almost like a a state of grace or lost innocence. Yeah. Well, one of the, I think, more ironies or difficulties sometimes about being a fan is like, or I think part of being a fan is like inarticulate love. It's a love that is potentially not bound in language or or critical thought. It's bound in sheer feeling. (laughs) And that can be a very difficult state to get into if that's, if part of your job is to articulate your thoughts around a cultural artifact. I think that that's the case. And One of the things the book is grappling with is the reality of the word you just used, feeling. You know, that feeling is part of the story and that we sort of try to think about these things, try to think about the problem of separating these things, try to think about the role that so-called cancel culture plays in it, try to think about the role carceral feminism plays in it, you know, think about all these different ideas 
But at core, so much of our relationship with art and now with biography is one of feeling. So it is out in many ways at first outside of words. And then one of the things I'm trying to do here is arrange words around feelings because that's my job. So that was one of the challenges of the book. Like, how do you anatomize some of those feelings? Okay. And then you, you brought up the term that we should talk about, even though this book is not prescriptive, but cancel culture. In the context of the art monster and feeling and all that, what is cancel culture? What role does it play? What is it? I guess there's <laughs> a bigger question. Yeah. I mean, well, just, I, I guess, sort of tossing it back to you in sort of a mischievous way, or why should we talk about it? Why do we need to talk about it? I mean, I think it's a valid question. The reason why I think we maybe should talk about it is it, because I think for a lot of people, that's the access point to this kind of conversation, right? That within this potentially inarticulate sort of state of both fandom and sort of feeling hurt or feeling like something is ruined for you or that you've been betrayed by a person who you have admired, you know, that cancel culture sort of has put a term to something that people have experienced. And it's a very, I mean, I find it very, very clunky, almost always kind of useless, politicized to death, obviously, discussed to death in a way. But because it's this like access point, I think perhaps we should we should cover it. Yes, I absolutely, I agree. We should cover it. The reason I'm tossing it back to you is sort of exactly what you said. You describe it as this access point, right? And I think that just to back up before we talk about it, once again, the sort of question arises, why is this the access point? And I think that asking why cancel culture, the idea of it is the access point is really valuable. I don't want to get into a big political discussion, but it is this incredible framing of the debate that's so limiting and that is so dismissive of the accusations. You know, it sort of takes something where people said something that happened to them, gives it this name to contain it, and immediately sort of turns it into this kind of brushes back the accusation and takes us into this new place called cancel culture, whose very core is contemptuous. So I'm very happy to talk about it. And I'm glad you brought it up. And I just, I'm trying to acknowledge that it's, it's this very specific kind of access point that doesn't need to be that way. It's sort of a politically and culturally determined in a way that is, as you say, kind of not useful. But in terms of what I have to say about it as something that exists. Um, I wrote about cancel culture in the book very briefly. I almost never use the phrase because I detest it so entirely. I do have critiques of the culture of accusation in this book and the culture of, you know, punitive relationship to the maker of the work. These are things that I take on in the book, but cancel culture is not the lens through which I see that. But I, I knew I had to write about it. And so there is a paragraph about cancel culture in the book. And I will tell you, it took me a year to write. It was one of the hardest things to write in the book. I mean, it wasn't the only thing I did that year, but sometimes it felt like it. I just knew there were, there were sort of a couple moments in the book where I, as you said earlier, the book does equivocate constantly. It's like this kind of Buster Keaton wobbling along, a, you know, a 
a tripwire. There were a couple moments where I, in the book where I knew I had to just sit down and say what I thought and really not complicate it. And this was one of them. So what I come to is just this idea that that cancel culture, take the name away from it and look at what it actually means, people saying what happened to them. It's got these knock-on effects, which are not desirable, right? But that saying what happened is really important. How do we, sorry to use we, how do I get better if nobody says what happened to them? It's just to use the idea of cancel culture to disempower people to talk about what is wrong is to actually give up on the idea that we can improve. So that's my perspective on it. I don't know if that's helpful or if that's what you're actually asking. I think that is helpful. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Claire Dieterer, author of Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We're excited to have Hernan Diaz back with us on the line today. Hernan is the author most recently of Trust, which was long listed for the 2022 Booker Prize and is now out this month in paperback. He joins us today for this week's book recommendation. So Hernan, what book are you recommending? Hi, Eric. Good to be back here. Actually, I'm going to cheat because I'm going to recommend two books because I, I like the pairing of having both together. One is very, very new and one is a couple of years old. I'll start with the older one. They're both by Norwegian authors. That's the beginning of the pairing. The first one is by Hanne Ørstavik and it's called Love, translated from the Norwegian by Martin Aitken published by Archipelago Books. It's a beautiful book. It's quietly disquieting. Uh, It narrates in parallel storylines an evening in the life of a single mother and her child. I won't give away more than that. It's in the dead of the Norwegian winter. It's very eerie. It's very, again, disquieting. I can't come up with a better word than that. And it's so lovely how both narratives intertwine. We've all read books where you have two different narrative strands intertwining, but she does it in a completely novel and elegant way. I can't recommend it enough. It's an austere, stern, restrained book. And on the other end of the spectrum, I would like to recommend Gunil Oyhog's latest book, Evil Flowers. I hope I'm not butchering her name. Published by FSG and translated by Carrie Dixon. I had the good fortune of uh, being on a panel with Gunil a few weeks ago about this book. And I'm very, very excited about this collection of short stories. And it is on the other end of an imaginary spectrum from the first book I talked about. This is a completely wild, completely wild in the best possible sense, slippery uh, book. The short stories, we never know quite what to expect. It's one of those books. I've seen this like in Clarice Lispector, in some of Muriel Spark, you know, in Flann O'Brien, you know, when you're in the story and suddenly you're out of the story and you're being sort of uh, addressed as the reader, for example, or the author makes an intrusion. The fourth wall is constantly broken. Every single formal expectation is disrupted. And it's it's funny too, which is always a welcome thing. (laughs) So from disquieting to funny, we've got a full range of, of Norwegian fictional experience. 
I think so. And uh, Gunil Oyhog's book is just, just, just out, hot off the press with FSG translated by Kerry Dixon. Can you give us those titles and authors together one more time? I will, and I will utterly destroy their names. I hope they forgive me. The first book is called Love by Hane Erstavik. And the second book is called Evil Flowers, obviously a play on Baudelaire's uh, Flowers of Evil, by Gunil Oyehog. Fantastic. We've been speaking with Hernan Diaz, author most recently of Trust, now out in paperback. Thanks so much for joining us again, Hernan. Thanks, Eric. You're listening to the LARG Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Claire Dieterer, author of Monsters. The book is divided into categories, which is a really interesting way to, to dissect the subject. One of the m- most interesting categories, I think, is this category of genius that you discuss in the book and the different allowances that are provided to a person who has been labeled a genius. Can you talk about how genius complicates the issues around the work and the person? Yeah, I think that genius, the idea of genius both complicates and simplifies the relationship. I think that genius is, I talk about it as this almost category or status of person. The genius is the person who gets to do whatever they want. And when we talk about genius or certainly 20th century conversations around how artistic, you know, great artistic work is made is dependent on this idea of some greater force than you flowing through you. There's a way in which you're serving that greater force. I was talking to a brilliant young writer last week for Document Magazine, and she said the idea of the external force flowing through you actually makes the genius absent a biography. It takes the genius outside biography because everything that's meaningful about them, you know, exists outside them, which I thought was just very elegantly put. But the genius sort of has this energy or this artistic impulse flowing through him that gives us his great work, right? That gives us the Guernica or whatever it is that's the work you're talking about. That's like very much the formulation about how genius operates. And so that idea of impulsivity and freedom, license, all these things that the genius sort of uses to create the work is the same thing that, you know, makes them do rotten things, do impulsive rotten things. And so there's this way in which we don't want the genius to turn off, you know, the power that makes him make the work. So we somehow, that quality gives him this hall pass to continue doing these other impulsive things. So that kind of complicates how we look at the biography of the genius. And I talk a lot about how the genius chapter is organized around Picasso and Hemingway. It's not just that these two artists inhabit that role. They also helped create it. You know, Picasso and Hemingway were really both at the height of their power at the beginning of the the mass communication era. And they both were used it or were used by it brilliantly. And 
So there's a way in which that conception, that contemporary or at least modern conception of genius flows through their efforts, not just through their work, not just through their the rotten aspects of their biography, but also through their shaping of it through the medium. So all those things sort of come together to help coalesce this idea of genius. And the idea of genius is incredibly helpful to the audience because if you like something, you can just say the person is a genius and then it's out of your hands. So it becomes this incredible buy for people. And it's something that has really since, you know, in the last few years started to be taken apart by critics and, you know, not just myself talking about how this word has been used to sort of do an end run around some of this problematic knowledge of biography that we have. Yeah. And I mean, much of that chapter is also about masculinity. And I would say most of the book is about men, male monsters. (laughs) But you do dedicate several chapters to women. And I want to talk about that. You identify mothers abandoning their children as probably the most monstrous thing a woman artist can do. You know, that's perceived as the most monstrous thing. Yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah, And feel most. Anyway, go on with your questions. That's an important distinction, of course, but it is not one of the important things about this book. It's like, there's no objectivity here, right? It's like, it's pure subjectivity in the way that we are encountering these biographies in this work. So that's an important distinction. Why did you land on mothers abandoning their children or women artists abandoning their children as this important category of a female, what is perceived as a female monster? Yeah, I mean, that definitely grew out of my lived experience of having this very complex relationship with my own small abandonments to go to work and this sort of guilt and the problem of how to deal with guilt and the feelings that it wasn't okay to leave my children. So it's, and I hope that 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 sort of personal genesis is very clear in the book. And then of course, as I talked to other women and and explored this problem, it is something that I, I saw so many women mothers struggling with was this, this really this, feeling that it's not okay to leave the children and go to work. I'm not saying it's not okay to do that. And this conflict that then starts to arise between artwork and care work. One of the reasons that I so extensively pursue the image of the abandoning mother as monster in the book is because that's a conflict all people have. You know, that it's not gendered and it's not, there's nothing essentially, you know, I'm just pushing back a little bit against this idea of an essentialist idea that only mothers can care, though I don't do that in the book. But there's kind of like, it's almost a parable for this division in every person between artwork and care work, not a mother writer problem, a carer self problem. I think that that kind of idea of those two things being intention is where a lot of artists struggle. Where do my needs as an artist meet my needs to my family, my community, my kids? Yeah. One of the things that also struck me when thinking about the sort of different categories that you have here is that you discuss this in the chapter. I think it's titled The Anti Semite, the Racist, and the Problem of Time, where 
as a Jewish woman, for a long time, I have been aware that there's work that I love that is not for me. And as your friend said in this chapter, well, if you throw out the anti-Semites, you're throwing everybody out. Who are we left with? Who are we left with? And I've said this to my partner so many times, you know, when they've brought up, oh, somebody's in it. And I'm like, well, (laughs) I've made peace with this a long time ago. And I think, you know, for many different kinds of people, many different we's, that's a kind of a real thing, that this is just something that they've encountered and thought about for a long time. Is it different now? Do you think this question has become more urgent? Do you think there's some difference in terms of the current moment? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think, you know, one thing that was really writing that chapter about Wagner, the chapter you're talking about, I go back and I look at Wagner's writing about, it's so distasteful to even talk about it. It's really uncomfortable. But I talk about his essay, Judaism and Music. I mean, Wagner was hideously anti-Semitic his entire life and apparently constantly, like you read biographies of him and he'll just, you know, sort of be chatting with someone over coffee and he'll point everything toward this subject. But the essay was stunning to me, Judaism in Music, which was, you know, an infamous essay. And one of the reasons it was stunning to me was that he talks about knowing better. He talks about the idea that there's, he actually uses the phrase liberal bedazzlements. He's like these liberal bedazzlements that want you to think, that want to say that we accept Jewish people, but I'm speaking the truth. I'm only saying what we're really, what we all really feel in our hearts, that they are unacceptable. And of course, that position is, you know, like... (laughs) incredibly contemporary. I mean, we all know who got elected on exactly that kind of formulation, this only saying what we're all really thinking. And for me, that was the realization that that had been being used for so long, this idea that, you know, that it's only these sort of soft-hearted liberals that don't want to look at the truth. I felt like it brought me clarity looking at the question, because I think it's too easy to constantly duck out and say, well, the times were different then. And it sort of brought me to this place of like the times weren't different then. And the the sort of place you can jump forward from there is right now we're making work that is not acceptable. Right now we're thinking thoughts that in a hundred years will be laughably not okay. (laughs) You know, that we sort of haven't come to a place where we've really solved any, you know, these major problems, you know, that... And people, when they talk about this, often talk about the idea, you know, in 100 years, we'll look back on people, you know, in films driving combustion engine cars and be like, oh, great, thanks, you know, because we do know better, right, about that. So is it more urgent right now? I mean, I really don't know the answer to that question. And I wonder what you think. Like, I, it became urgent to me because it was something I was living inside of and I began to explore And this was before Trump was elected. And then Trump was elected. And then the Weinstein accusations happened. And there was this kind of cultural moment of intensity around it. These questions, as you're exactly as you're saying, and as you're so smartly saying, have been in front of us forever, you know, and that you've been living with these questions your whole life and wrestling with them. And to say that they've only come forward now is to live in a state of 
blissful ignorance and not realizing one's own, you know, maybe if you think it's just coming forward right now, it's because you haven't been affected by it. Not you personally, because the speaker hasn't been affected previously. That is a really complicated way of saying, I don't know. I think that makes perfect sense. One of the discussions in this book is around this question of consumption and treating this thorny problem as solvable by what we choose to consume and what we choose not to consume. And you very much reject that kind of dichotomy. And I wonder if you could explain that. Why is this question of consumption not quite sufficient for the difficulty of this of this issue? Consumption is obviously, and you know, the sort of decision that you make around consumption is obviously a very straightforward way to address the problem, right? Like I, you know, I just, I won't line Roman Polanski's pockets with my dollars to rent the films. And that's fine. I don't, I don't have any problem with somebody making that decision. That seems like a personal choice. But I think that one of the ideas, and I, these are always such sort of ham-handed ideas to discuss, but I'm just going to go ahead and do it. I think that I live in late capitalism. I have a role within that structure. And the, you know, my role within that structure is the role of consumer. That is my job. It's your job. It's all of our job. That is what we do in this structure. And there's a sense in which casting the artist out, making a decision about how we're going to consume the work is simply kind of a a reassertion of that structure. It doesn't take us outside our own role as consumer. And we can't really control everything in our role as consumer. You know, structure or capital wants us to feel like we can solve things individually. We want, you know, recycling's gonna, you know, this whole idea that recycling will address the various environmental issues we're having when there's our individual contributions are so tiny in the face of the changes that need to be made on a governmental and corporate scale. But if we can keep redounding to the individual choice, it feels like power, but it's actually disempowering. It actually makes us feel like we have power in a way that isn't really ultimately meaningful. And so I took this lens, this, a lot of my thinking comes through the writing of Mark Fisher. And if people haven't read Capitalist Realism, it's a life-changing book. But what that led me toward was a critique of this problem through that lens, that lens of how do we navigate as consumers or try to escape our role as consumers in this late capitalist landscape. And of course we can't, but it's also okay to not trick ourselves into thinking we're having control through conscious consumption choices when it doesn't really make a difference. And in the book, I say, you know, how you consume a piece of art isn't going to make you a good or bad person. You're going to have to figure out a different way to accomplish that. And, you know, in a sense, do something else that might actually be useful rather than sort of setting yourself next to victims by making this consumer statement about whether or not you're going to consume the art. Rather, you know, do something is maybe a better choice. I think part of the difficulty, I think, in some of these issues, and and particularly starting like in 2016 and, and now, is this like feeling of like total powerlessness. Like you just, there's really nothing you can do. And so I think one of the ways in which somebody might feel control is this consumption. But, but I I agree with you. Like, I I think it's kind of like recycling (laughs) where it's like, yeah, your individual choice 
structurally is probably not going to make a huge difference. Well, and think about the phrase cancel culture, like what it's doing is rushing you you know, so somebody says what happened to them, cancel culture, the concept of it rushes past that statement into, well, what are we going to do about the work? So what it's really rushing you into is disempowerment, is into this status as consumer, which doesn't really necessarily have meaning. The book ends on a chapter called The Beloveds. And we've talked about this throughout our conversation, but the sort of supremacy of feeling that you keep returning to in this book. Can you talk a little bit about why you end on a discussion of love and feeling? So when I was partway through this project, a friend started this conversation with me around a campfire about, he said, are you still writing that book about, you know, rotten artists? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I want I was just thinking about my stepdad. And, you know, he was a terrible guy. And my friend had a Dickensian childhood. I mean, it was like a very, very rough childhood with a lot of physical violence and a lot of it at the hands or near the hands of his stepfather. The stepfather ended up in prison and just really not the greatest guy. And my friend was saying, well, I still love him. And I was so struck, not just by the story, but by his urgent need to tell me the story in the context of my book. And it really brought home to me, it just was this sort of aha moment of the importance of love, the fragility of love, and the, I'm sorry to use this word, but the redemptive quality of love. You know, my friend, he didn't need his stepfather to be better. He was appreciative of his own love and sort of amazed at his own love in the face of all that bad behavior. And so that really guided me toward this idea of this relationship between audience and the art monster as this almost laboratory for the relationship between us and the people in our lives. And this sort of larger problem of what do we do about the people who behave badly in our lives and also what do the people in our lives do when we behave badly. And I always wanted the book to sort of swerve into that at the end to kind of almost have it opening up into a new discussion and you feel like another book is starting (laughs) at the end of the book, this whole other discussion. Because of course, the whole book is meant to be, one of the reasons it's so relentlessly subjective is to create this opportunity or space for the, the reader to be in a dynamic with the book and be thinking about their own experience. And so I liked ending the book with opening that even further. Well, Claire, thank you so much for joining us and discussing your new book. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. We've been speaking with Claire Dieterer. Her new book is called Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten.